You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Lacrosse Footwear. Had to rip out the old Alpha Burley Pros to do some scouting. Had to cross a couple cricks a couple days ago. Then I went and built a snowman in my front yard with the Atlas from the new Navigator series. I guess what I'm getting at is if you're an outdoorsman, whether you hunt the cold parts, the coldest parts of the season, or the hottest parts of the season, or the driest or wettest parts of the season, Lacrosse Footwear has a boot for you and your hunting conditions. So, if you want to find out more information about all of the boots that Lacrosse offers, visit lacrossefootwear.com. Alrighty, everybody, welcome back to the Nine Finger Chronicles. <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing. I have been doing some serious voiceover work today, and I have literally lost my mind repeating the same things 700 times in a row, and my mind is worn out because today was one of those days where, uh, let's see, it's it's 9.42 in the evening, and I just started working, and uh, I, I, I played daddy daycare all day today, right? And my son is hitting the terrible twos like a Category 5 hurricane hits the East Coast. I'm telling you, being a parent these days is very, very difficult, but at least I have booze, and at least I have this microphone to vent into i don't if i didn't have this podcast and couldn't vent into this microphone i don't know what i would do i would have to actually spend money on a therapist i think but uh today we have an awesome episode we're going to be talking with jeremy yates and jeremy didn't start hunting until he was 38 years old he's 30 he's 46 right now so this is a really awesome episode about being introduced to hunting later on in life and then falling in love with it and now it is it is his passion bow hunting and even rifle hunting are his passion uh, and uh, I don't blame the guy I, I love it myself so uh, an awesome episode but there's another little uh, side convo that happens in this episode and uh, Jeremy is into physical fitness he's been into physical fitness he's in his entire life he has been um he is a personal trainer. He manages personal trainers. And we talk a little bit about 
the importance of being in shape or exercises that you can do to prepare for whatever type of hunt that you're going on, whether you're sitting in a tree stand all day long or you're actually doing a big backcountry elk hunt up in the mountains. So uh, we talk about physical fitness as well. We talk about uh, food intake. We talk about the exercises and what you need to do to prepare and a whole bunch of other stuff as well so it's another one of those really good episodes that covers uh, you know a whole bunch of different things and uh, I keep getting the feedback that you guys are are sending me and from the sounds of it you like the content that's being put out so I'm going to keep putting out this type of content if you guys have an idea or know of someone who might make a good guest on the podcast DM me on Instagram or send me a message through Facebook or hit me up via email and uh, I'll do whatever I can to get those people on the episodes as well. And uh, it's time for a commercial. This is going to be an awesome commercial because I'm feeling a little feisty right now. And what do we land on today? I got a piece of paper with a list here. All right. It's wasp broadheads. Dude, I love wasp broadheads. Not I mean, I love the the product itself, but I've really, I really love the people that work there too, and they are passionate about what they do. They're passionate about the outdoors and and bow hunting, just like I am. And over the last three years, really getting to know the people that work for the company, I know now why that company is successful. It's because they got some awesome people working for them and who are passionate about the products. And when you have uh, a group of of people who are participants and not just uh, someone, let's say like a marketing guy who doesn't hunt, everybody hunts there. They love it and they they make some really awesome products. The materials are grade A. It's an American-made company, you know, it's an American company uh, and they just kick ass and they're tough as shit. And I love, this is going to sound gruesome, but I love killing an animal with a wasp broadhead, period. Whether it's the jackhammer or the boss foreblade, I love it. Hands down, love it. So if you want to find out more information, visit wasparchery.com. And if you do decide to purchase, you can use the discount code nine fingers. That's the number nine followed by the word fingers. And you're going to receive 20% off of your order. So commercials out of the way. It's episode time. It's podcast time. Let's get into today's episode with Jeremy Yates. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast brought to you by Vortex Optics. On the phone with me right now, Mr. Jeremy Yates. Jeremy, how you doing, man? Great, man. Good, good, good. All right, so um, you have a kind of a unique story. It's, it's one of those stories where a guy doesn't find hunting until later on in his life, and we're going to cover that. But before we get into that, I want to talk to you a little bit about where you live and what do you do for a living? Okay, I live in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, or actually a small suburb right out of St. Uh, Louis, Missouri, St. Charles. Uh, grew up in Illinois, uh, went to the military right out of high school, got back, lived in Illinois for a little bit, didn't move to St. Louis. Uh, I've been in the, the personal training field for roughly 19 years, uh, started right out of college and just had a knack for it, loved it, loved helping people, just loved fitness. Uh, besides hunting, that is my 
only true passion. So it's just been a really wild ride. I've uh, at one point, you know, managed uh, in some 300, 400 personal trainers. And um, at one point just been training 30, 40 clients myself. And, you know, there's great things about in some both them scenarios that I love, but I'll never get away from training individual clients. Yeah. I'll tell you what, um, oh, this was a handful of years ago. I want to say like five, five or six years ago, I, I wasn't a personal trainer, but I led a, um, like a cardio kickboxing weightlifting class where we would do uh, kickboxing um, and some MMA type stuff on top of, um, you know, uh, intense weightlifting and kind of mix it all into uh, a really high in impact, high intensity, um, hour of working out. And I had an absolute blast doing that. But the reason I bring this up is because I would every once a session or once every six months, I would have someone come up to me and tell me that the program was not working for them, <laughs> but they were always half assing it throughout their entire workout yeah and i'm just like jesus man i can't i can't tell you to get your ass in gear right with that mentality you're going to be fat forever or whatever um do you have to run into people like that in in uh your throughout the years as uh as a personal trainer yeah we always have uh clients that you know they just don't adhere to whatever is programmed for them whether it's in a group class that you're talking about where everyone's kind of competing together and kind of feeding off each other and there's just an energy in the room or even if it's something where you give them homework and you're like you know i need you to get on a treadmill and do 25 minutes of cardio or a stair stepper or whatever and they'll just tell you well i just didn't do it yeah and you know early in my career it really frustrated me and i just wanted to get mad at the client <laughs> and then i kind of thought and had a realization that I have to find ways of programming something that every individual client will do. Yeah. So I could program you the best, the best workout in the world for what you're doing. If you don't do it, what's the point? Right. Right. So how do you, I mean, everybody gets really excited about, um, I don't know, getting like starting a new workout regimen because everybody sees the end result. They want the six pack. They want the strong arms and legs and, and to look good in the mirror and to be healthier. But what about the people who they see that, but they don't see the path in front of them that is made up of hard work and struggle and, and the, the, the mental game that is fitness. Uh, it's a counseling session. Every yeah. time you talk to them, it's keeping their mind mentally into it and showing them little, little bitty goals and success in them little goals, whether it's, you know, last week you could only do five, five perfect pushups. And this week we did seven, you know, little things like that pointed out over and over again, will keep someone going. And I always say the magic number is the, about the four to six week mark, because the four to six week mark is when your friends, your family, your husband, wife start seeing the difference. Yeah. And the moment that happens and they're giving you compliments, usually the person's committed. Yeah. Yeah. And then does that then become easier for you and you can start pushing them in different ways instead of, I guess, babysitting their, their, uh, I guess their attitude. 
Yeah, that's well, that's when it gets fun. And, you know, there's going to be certain clients and, that will never, ever become someone that loves working out, Yeah, you know. But there will be other clients that will, you'll discover someone that had never worked out their whole life. And after that four to six instead of week mark and they start getting results, they become animals. I mean, I've got clients that are hundreds of times in better shape than I think I am right now. Yeah. That have just became amazing at fitness. Okay. All right. So let's, uh, I want you to uh, dive into my life just a little bit. And I am on a, a very, I got laid off from my job almost a year ago in March, and I had an excellent routine to where I would get up, I would go to work, and over my lunch hour, I would I would go and work out. Uh, and I was in decent shape. That allowed me to get in shape for, you know, my uh, all my Western hunts and, and really, you know, dedicate one hour, five days a week to um, my health and fitness. Since then, I've done a... Uh, absolutely horrible job. I've continued on the eat like you're working out <laughs> diet and, Ooh. you know, and then, uh, but not having a, a set routine because I'm also a stay at home dad and time, you know? So basically right now I'm giving you an excuse why I am fat and out of shape. So what advice do you have for someone who's like me, who has no set schedule, who has no real routine uh, and uh, who really should, you know, keep working out and, and, and eating healthier? You know, I think uh, for one, we could probably find a few things where you could do at home on certain days, but uh, even then, I mean, with kids, I have two two young kids and if I'm at home with both of them, I'm not getting anything done. So sometimes that doesn't even work. Uh, The biggest thing would be finding, you know, two to three hours to start that you could commit to getting away to a gym. You know, if that means five in the morning for you, why the kids are still asleep. If that means after your wife gets home, it's whatever works for you. I know some people are more morning, morning people and some are more night, but we got to get you to commit to a process because if we can't get a process going, we're never going to see results. Right. Yeah. I, uh, I completely, I completely understand that. I just need to, you know, tie the laces tight and say, all right, let's just make it happen. You just got to do it. And, uh, I, 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 I've already identified what the problems are, you know, eating the same junk food that the kids eat or, um, you know, deciding that inst- at the end of the night it's like 10 o'clock i instead of sitting down and watching an hour of netflix before i go to bed i should probably go do a workout or something like that anything anytime so this all kind of this mentality and this uh physical fitness is a lot like taking a, a next step into hunting and uh, and we're going to get to all that um, here in a second. But you sent me this message. Uh, you sent me this email. And it says here that you're currently 46 years old and you didn't start hunting until you were 38. Now, before we get into what got you into hunting, I want to talk to you about your childhood. Like there's a lot of us who call ourselves hunters who got um, introduced into hunting or fishing or the outdoors at a very early age. Did you come from a hunting or fishing family or an outdoors family at all? Um, not hunting at all. Uh, my grandpa 
had hunted a little bit. I mean, rabbit hunted, I believe. And, you know, my parents had never hunted. My dad never hunted. Uh, and I hung out with my grandpa a lot, but at that point in his life, he was really into fishing. So I grew up on a bass boat with my grandpa all summer long. Okay. So I had always been part of fishing. And then he passed away at an early age, I think, or for me, I was, I think, 12 or 13. Okay. So then from that point on, there was no outdoors for me besides, you know, playing through friends, going, going mountain biking and stuff like that. Right. So it was, it was, and I had no friends, like where I grew up at, either I wasn't in the cliques that hunted or I just didn't know of any hunters. But as far as I knew growing up, no one hunted. Right. Did you live in a more uh, urban setting growing up as a kid or did do you live in a, like a, a more rural, small town environment? It was more of a rural. I mean, we're in a community right across the river from St. Louis. So I was 20 minutes from the airport in St. Louis. Okay. It was, it was definitely more urban. Urban. Okay. Urban. Gotcha. So that probably had something to do with your friends and your clique and the kids that you run around with not being, uh, not having access to hunting or not having the same opportunities as someone like myself who grew up in a, I would say more of a rural farming community, uh, and having hunting and fishing opportunities right at my front door. Yep. Okay. All right. So, um, years go by, did you dabble in it in high school or when you went into the service at all? Uh, well, when I went in the Marine Corps, I was, you know, you're, you're in a platoon with people from all over the country and ton of people from, you know, country settings and all the people in my platoon just talked about deer hunting all the time. They, I mean, <laughs> you just thought it was their religion mm -hmm. and, me being from that urban area, I just really didn't understand it, but I was intrigued. I always listened to it, to them, but, um, you know, we were, during the times I was in, it was a very busy time. I mean, so we were deployed a lot. I never really got to experience any kind of hunting in the Marine Corps, but I got, you know, got really good with the firearm, very proficient, very comfortable in the woods. I was infantry, so, I mean, we slept every week in the woods. So I just got very comfortable with the outdoors, and... Then when I got out, you know, college, career, girls, family, all that, yeah. you know, kept me going until I think at 38, a guy I worked with, uh, Sean, he uh, took me out uh, to my first rifle hunt in Missouri, and I was hooked. That was it. Okay. I, I think I researched for hundreds of hours after that. Gotcha. All right. So I want to talk about that interaction right there. Um, your buddy, he he asked you to go hunting or did you ask him to go hunting or, or what was that conversation like, uh, with your buddy and yourself that, that broke the ice before you even went out to the field and hunted? Well, he, uh, he married into a family that was, you know, it was part of their religion to go on rifle season. Mm -hmm. They had a great piece of property in central Missouri and, just they loved it and kept talking about hunting camp and hunting camp and i think he was probably went to two himself with the family before he invited me but we were really close friends at the time and we still are he invited me to hunting camp and i think probably i was nervous and scared but at the same time i wanted to act like i kind of knew what i was doing so i was like oh yeah 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 we'll go yeah you know? and not really knowing what i was getting into and that i would like it and you know the the interesting thing about about this hunting camp and now 
years later, I've went to numerous hunting camps and it's part of my life now and hit the hunting camp I went to, uh, hit his mother-in-law was the hunter of the family. She was the, or she is the one that is in charge of the hunting. And first thing she said to us was, you come to my property and hunt, you go out at sunrise before it, that sun comes up and you don't come in until that sun's set. You don't come back for lunch. You better pack everything you need because we hunt from light to dark here. <laughs> so my first experience was an all-day set. Yeah, yeah. Which someone coming from your background in the Marine Corps was probably easier for you to digest than someone who maybe didn't. I mean, you know, at this time you're a grown man. You'd been in some uh, uncomfortable situations, I, I take it, in the Marine Corps, whether it was through training or uh, being deployed. But I have a feeling, you know, and I'm putting words in your mouth. I'd love to hear what you have to say about like the first all day sits. Was it a, was it, Hey, this isn't a big deal or was it, Hey man, this sucks. Um, I, I, I mean, I loved it. I thought yeah. it was amazing. Uh, you know, now looking back the mistakes I made, I mean, I hunted out there three years in a row for all day sits, you know, three days in a row of all day sits. And all I did is read books. Yeah. I thought, you know, well, this hunting thing's great. I'm away from the family and I have time to read, <laughs> so, you know, who knows how many beers you know, here I miss with my head in a book, but it was still, I shot my first doe. I think the, the like second or third day out, that was amazing. You know, I still saw wildlife that I'd never seen that close that didn't know I was there. So it was an amazing experience. Yeah. So this, uh, your buddy invited you to his in-laws deer camp. Was yep. this, were you welcomed with open arms at that point or was there uh, a group? Because I, I got invited to a deer camp once during Iowa gun season and um, half of the people were my friends and the other half of uh, the people were someone I've never really met before. And they, every, you know, at the beginning of every morning's hunt, there was a, a big sit down, talk about safety, talk about what the plan is, when you get in, when you get out. Like there was a guy kind of in charge of the uh, of it. Um, were you welcomed with open arms or, or was there just like, uh, here's a new guy. What's he going to do? Did you feel any, um, odd vibes your way? No, not at all. I, I mean, it was like a, it was like a second family, you yeah. know, and, uh, his, uh, instead of his mother-in-law would be up at four in the morning, even though she wasn't hunting that day, you know, making us breakfast and, you know, it was just, they were an amazing family and they still are. And they just really welcomed me with open arms and, I've went to two other hunting camps since then. I go with a camp on my wife's wife's side of the family every year now uh, for shotgun in Illinois. And same thing. I mean, I went to a camp there with 12 or 13 guys that have been hunting for years together. And I think it's just the community. They just welcome me with open arms. Right, right. So I would love to get your take on being introduced to something at 38 compared to 14 um, or 10 or even 20, right? Uh, you know, a person does a lot of growing between, you know, throughout their life. And what do you think is your opinion on how you were able to um, absorb hunting 
as a new hunter at 38 compared to, let's say, a kid in the teens or early 20s? Uh, I think I was just always the personality that loved to try stuff new. I mean, I've, uh, I've always said I'm like, I'm pretty much a jack of all trades, but the master of none, you know, I've always been the type to have tons of hobbies. So I think for me, just having an opportunity to learn another hobby was huge. Yeah. You know, it gave me something to work towards. Uh, you know, I think it's, you know, I have a young child right now. I have a boy that's eight that I'm starting to think of taking out and introducing and, you know, they hear me talking all the time. They watch me watch YouTube videos and listen to podcasts. And, you know, both both my kids, my boy and my girl, and my girl's only three still, so it'll be a little bit. And I'm trying to think how, what the best way to introduce them to, and I'm scared to death I'm going to scare them out of it. Because yeah. I think I was at the age, especially with the military background, I wasn't going to get scared out of it. And I'm afraid that I don't want to take them out and get them out there and it goes horribly wrong or he freezes to death and he never wants to do it again. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's funny you say that is because, you know, you have, you, you started, it sounds like you started hunting when you already had a child. Um, and you know, although you've been hunting now for what, like, uh, six years, eight years, eight years, eight years. Okay. So you've been, you've been hunting for yeah. eight years. Do you feel like you've gotten to, you've like gone through the different phases of, um, Hey, I'm a new hunter. I should shoot whatever walks in front of me to, uh, maybe I'm going to pass a deer or two to get a deer with maybe some bigger antlers or an older age class to the point where now you pick out a specific deer and you want to hunt it for an entire season. Or are you still in that, um, limited to a, a rifle season or a shotgun season and you just participate with that weapon? Uh, well, it's a great question. Now I actually, so now I'm into bow hunting completely. I probably started bow hunting my second or third season. I, I think I bought a bow my second season and didn't even use it till my third as far as going out and hunting. And I had no one at the time to teach me, teach me bow hunting. So it was, that was completely on my own, you know, podcasts and, and YouTube basically. But, uh, I think, I'm a little different because I think I've went both ways. I think I started really watching hunting media when I first got into hunting. And at that time it was sportsman's channel and, you know, I'm seeing these huge deer get killed. And in my head, I thought I had to shoot 160 inch to be a hunter or it was a waste. Yeah. So probably the first four or five years I passed on so many small bucks and shot a few doe. And I got to the point where, I think it was two seasons ago. I started thinking to myself, I don't know if I can actually shoot a buck if one comes in front of me with my bow because I've never really shot deer with my bow. I guess I shot, I think two does at the time, you know, and that was it. Yeah. I had always done well with rifle and shotgun, but you know, I think that's from the military. That's just like a second arm to me. When I'm not yeah. Saying, you know? Yeah. It makes sense. So it, it was just natural. I never missed a shot then. Yeah. Let me, let me ask you this. Did you feel that you were influenced by the big buck culture on television and that in order for you to, um, in order for you to be deemed successful, you had to shoot in a, a buck with big antlers? hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah. 
Yeah. And if not just TV, I mean, Facebook and, you know, I came from a field where I work with, you know, very competitive people that all played college athletics and, you know, all they brag about, all anyone brags about is their biggest deer. And it's like, you sit back as a new hunter, not really wanting to act like the noob. And you're just thinking to yourself, I better not ever bring home a little deer. Yeah. Yeah. I do. And even, even growing up in Iowa, um, when I first started bow hunting in 2006, I put a trail camera out and I was showing the farmer, the pictures of the deer that I got on this trail camera. And I said, Ooh, look at this big buck right here. I thought it was this big buck. It was probably like a 110 inch, uh, eight pointer had brow tines on it. Just, it was the biggest deer that I had ever seen up close at the time, really. And he goes, don't shoot that deer. There's way bigger deer out here than that. And that little interaction right there kind of, I know the farmer wouldn't have cared of whatever deer that I shot, but that kind of changed me. Uh, and then throughout that, that entire season and going into like growing deeper into the hunting community and learning about big bucks, um, I was kind of brainwashed too into thinking that success meant inches of antler and success meant old age class or whatever. And, and I passed up a lot of opportunities from 2006 to about 2011 of deer that I had never even, you know, I, I had never even killed a, at that point, like 140 inch deer. So I was passing 140 inch deer, even bigger than that, just so I could I don't know, brag to my friends that I shot a big buck and I'm, I feel like I missed out on a ton of opportunity, um, getting comfortable with shooting deer with a bow. Did, did you feel that way at all? Once you realized that? Yeah. Yeah. I think it was, uh, you know, so, so not this season, the season before. And I just thought to myself, I think it was actually, I was listening to a podcast and like someone said, you'll never, be able to be good at shooting deer until you shoot deer yeah and that just resonated with me and then of course all the all the awesome new media coming up from the podcast world the youtube world i think they're very supportive of shoot what gets you excited absolutely and i started slowly changing my feet my feeling about what i could get what i could shoot and still feel good about it and you know it's been amazing since then i mean yeah. i think just even even I, I i've only shot so i shot my first buck with a bow beginning of the season. So years later, you know, my first buck with a bow and he was a nice buck, but I didn't know he was a nice buck at the time. It was one of them situations where I was in a stand and it was right at the end of the, the night, probably 10 minutes more of shooting light. And this buck came through and he was trotting and I pulled my bow and I just knew he was, I was going to shoot him. I mean, I knew he was legal and I knew that it was exciting and I, shot and I didn't even realize he was as good as he was and he's not any record breaker but I don't think it would have mattered I was so I just let myself enjoy the moment and it's it's helped my hunting this year so much every time I went out I think I felt like I had no pressure I just wanted to find something that excited me yeah yeah um so when you first started hunting would you say you got into hunting more um, for the social aspect and less of the I hunt because I'm a hunter aspect? Or I guess kind of explain what was going through your head and, and why you committed to becoming a hunter. 
Uh, I think it's both a little bit for me. You know, I go to a deer camp uh, for shotgun season, and I'm not going to my buddy's deer camp anymore for rifle. I'm trying to start my own. We got a cabin in like the Ozark Mountains of Missouri. Me and my me and my parents, and I'm trying to start a deer camp down there. Take my dad hunting for the first time, and my son, and you know, so I got two deer camps I will be going to every year, and that's all about social. Yeah, that's all about being around people, and and it's kind of reminds me of being in the Marine Corps. You know, yeah. being in a because, like you said, you come back and you sit around and you talk about everything. You talk about safety before. That's straight from the playbook from the military, you know. Yeah. And, and just, like, sitting around at night and telling stories and it, really celebrating with everyone about what they killed or what even they saw. Even if you don't kill anything, just talk about what you saw. It's exciting. Yeah. It's, it's a brotherhood. It really is. Yeah. And that's a big part of it for me. But then my bow hunting, you know, I only – really bow hunted a few times with another person. So that's like my solo challenge. It's I go out on my own. I do public land a lot. I hike in a long way. I, you know, I carry a saddle and I, you know, I've been doing that for, I think five seasons now. So to me, it's like, that's a whole solo adventure of trying to see if I can get on deer every time. Right. So it sounds like you've, you've, joined for the social but then the social has led you to expand your own opportunity and help define you of what you are trying to be as a hunter yeah correct cool that's so awesome when um and i think the the world or the the hunting community needs more of that you know invite someone into a social setting get them excited about it take them out just like what your buddy did and and now here you are a handful of years later you don't need a mentor anymore you're running solo by yourself and uh you know now whether you know it or not you're going to be introducing your son into hunting very soon and uh, that's just exciting, I, I think. Yeah, me too. I mean, it's it's something. Now, you know, now I'm thinking I'm 46. And I'm like, what can I do to elongate my right. career? You know, right. I, I missed 20 years compared to a lot of people. And yeah. I'm like, I want to make sure I can hunt till I'm 70, till I'm 80. I, it's just, it's part of my life now. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So um, now, I guess where are you right now as a hunter has because uh, you you've mentioned that you've kind of fell in love with bow hunting has um, shotgun and rifle hunting kind of taken a back seat or is it still part of the picture but the main focus is on bow hunting uh, the main focus is bow hunting shotgun and rifle for me is more about the social the, the enjoying deer camp you know that's what i can it's just being down there. I really, you know, this year in rifle, I shot a, a doe in Missouri, shotgun in Illinois. Um, I, uh, some Illinois, I didn't get anything. So, but it was still both experiences were just as enjoyable, probably more enjoyable in Illinois because it's a big deer camp. So it's just fun. Yeah. And I think that that's never going to be my passion, but that's always going to be something I never want to miss because it is, it's that whole brotherhood. Right. Absolutely. And I want to be able to take people and show them the sport through that. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So where are you at now from a, um, 
a bow hunting perspective, and, and I'm asking this selfishly because I am a bow hunter, uh, what are some of the things that you've learned since you've picked up a bow, maybe some failures that have t- turned into success or some aha moments to where, holy man, I've been doing it wrong this entire time, and, and it took me this long to learn, and, and all those things. Wow. Uh, that could be a whole episode. <laughs> um, I hear that. I mean, you know, it's everything from at first, uh, just walking, you know, a hundred feet off the road or a hundred feet off the parking lot to, I, I, I'd say the biggest thing for me, like the biggest realization is uh, learning how to not get busted. You right. know, well, I got fine deer, you know, this last year I was really good at finding deer. I got in front of deer a lot. I would solve deer a lot of my sets, almost every one of my sets, but maybe this doesn't happen to everybody as much as me, but I don't even want to count how many doe have busted me in the last three seasons of bow hunting. Yeah. And I think it was because I was in a saddle and I think I was like a little kid and swinging around too much. Yeah. So have, have you changed then back to a, or like a tree stand or are you just, uh, or are, are you still a saddle hunter? I'm still a saddle hunter, but I, I, you know, I don't think it's, any better i really don't i mean yeah everybody says i can get in any tree i'm pretty comfortable getting any tree i think um for me i had a lot of climbing background in the marine corps okay uh i went through some assault climber courses where did a lot of lead climbing uh with ropes and i'm just more comfortable tied off on a tense rope than being standing there with a loose rope i I mean that's the best way i can describe it i feel way more comfortable Okay. I think what getting busted has really opened my eyes for is choosing the, the right background on a tree. I don't think I ever understood having a really thick backdrop to, you know, you could hide better and then not moving as much. You know, I don't spin around. <laughs> I don't, if I hear a, a squirrel, you know, I'm not spinning my whole body to look what it is. I think I was just getting disciplined in the fact that you need to stay still. Okay. And, I started practicing uh, drawing on every deer I saw, and you know I busted, I got busted a lot, but that allowed me because I had lost some shots last year, pulling my bow off the hook and doing it at the right wrong times, and I just think practice uh, instead of practicing it every sit's the only thing that's worked for me. Gotcha, gotcha. So just so not only uh, thinking about you know like you said earlier trying to shoot more deer to get comfortable around shooting deer. Uh, Also drawing back, you know, basically a detail of that is drawing back on deer that do make it in range that you're not going to shoot. Sounds like a pretty good idea, dude. I mean, I, I, I would recommend that to everybody, especially in a saddle that I have no experience in, but I would assume that it's a little, it's different you know, the more that you practice with it, the more that you do, you know, draw in it, the better you're going to become the moment of truth. Yes, for sure. Uh, you know, and another thing I didn't really add to that is saddle hunting. I mean, obviously it's the craze right now. It's blowing up Yeah. and I've been doing it for six years. So I was kind of one of the first adopters and, you know, if you really get into saddle hunting, you got to, in my opinion, you got to be really careful to not fall into the trap of finding the new most cool thing. I mean, I think for three out of my, you know, three out of my five or six seasons saddle hunting, I was trying new climbing methods two or three times a season. 
And you need to have one climbing method that's the easiest for you. And that's, and that's all you concentrate on because there was times I'd get in a tree and I'd have a new climbing method and it'd take me 45 minutes to get set up. Yeah. Yeah. And who knows how much noise I was making. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, so where, where are you at now? What are, what's your goal for 2020 as far as a, a bow hunter or even a, you know, even a, uh, a rifle shotgun hunter is concerned. Uh, well, in Missouri, we get two buck, two buck tags. And I haven't decided if I'm going to hunt Illinois next year. I might just get a doe tag for shotgun season just for the camaraderie, but I don't think I'm going to get a buck tag this year. Uh, so I would like to shoot one buck with my bow before rifle season. And I would love to be very confident to go out in rifle season, just shoot a doe or just look for a doe and then try to get my other buck and stuff after rifle season on something late season. And I'd like for, you know, both of them to be off public land. And I want to, I just want to get in deeper and find at least where they're betting or a good idea where they're betting. I I mean, I haven't had the issues of being around other hunters. I've actually found that in some public land, I very rarely see other hunters. Gaia. Gaia. Well, that's a good thing, right? Um, Yeah. Really good thing. So, are you? Because you've you've mentioned this that you know you, you're going to try to shoot more deer. Uh, are you going to shoot more deer with your bow, whether it's a doe or a buck, or are you limiting yourself to a specific age class or antler size? I would love to shoot something bigger than last year, but to be honest with you, if it excites me, I'm going to shoot it. Yeah. What's your uh, longest leave? Yeah. What's your take on uh, venison? Where are you at? I mean, do you love cooking it? Do you love, I mean, is that part of it for you? Well, that's a, that's a great question. That was actually kind of my own evolution too. You know, at first uh, I just would get it, everything processed, eat the sticks and eat the salami and, and, or, or the sausage, I mean, sorry. And I never, I, you know, make chili with the ground every now and then. And that'd be about the extent of it because my wife didn't really like venison. And so that was just the easiest way to do it. I'd give away a bunch. And last season, I really started looking into, you know, podcasts on like cooking venison, reading articles on cooking venison. And I've really, you know, made it a point this last year and a half to really eat a lot of venison. I have uh, three years this year that I will probably go through halfway through the season for sure yeah i mean before the season i'm eating i'm eating venison pretty much every day right now yeah that's one thing that we've i've really focused myself this year uh so i've i only have one deer in the freezer but i got some mule deer that i was able to uh, get as well this year Um, so i have a, a good amount of meat i made a lot of my buck that i shot this year into um sticks and salami for my wife absolutely loves the jalapeno cheddar salami she eats a lot of that that's not going to last um through the summer uh, my ground beef we my ground venison that we've got the ground and mule there that will be used before the uh before the summer's up so We've really started um, eating more of it and substituting in uh, venison for beef. But at the same time, what I've also done is really focused on cooking it the best that I can so that 
for example, I made these uh, venison fajitas the other day and my wife absolutely loved them because I took the extra time and energy to make sure they were marinated and cook them right to the point where it, I hate to use the word gamey because uh, gamey is a, a word for people who don't understand uh, venison, but took that flavor, a lot of that flavor out of it, made sure it was cooked right. And, uh, she ate it and she loved it. So I'm, I know that I'm focusing on being a better cook for the venison that I've got so that other people can enjoy it. And they don't have that excuse to say, Oh God, it's gamey or it's, uh, I'm not a fan of this or whatever. So, um, has your wife or kids taken into eating venison as well? Uh, and so my kids have always been okay with eating pretty much anything. So I'm yeah. lucky there. My wife actually this year, uh, so two different recipes. One, I brought home a heart from, from, uh, and so my buck I shot mm-hmm. and I looked up and found a recipe on meteor. I'm doing a coffee rub with a, with a whiskey butter sauce. Okay. And it came out. I mean, it was amazing. I gave my wife a piece and she right away went, can I have more? And I'd already ate everything. So I was like, oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta wait, wait for the next beer. <laughs> you know? Dude, I tell you what. But I think that changed her mindset. And yeah. I've made steaks for her this year. And, you know, like you said, use the, you know, the right marinades and just been creative with my cooking. Yeah. And she now loves it. Yeah. And I, I tell you what, this is with all meat. But before I cook it now, I let it get to room temperature. Uh, and I think that plays a big role in the tenderness of cooking any meat, really. I mean, I do it with st- same with my beef steaks before I throw them on the grill. Or, uh, for example, these uh, fajitas that I made, I let the uh, steak or the, the backstrap get to room temperature before I uh, 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 started cooking it. But I'm telling you right now, man, that it plays a world of a difference uh, for, to introduce others into venison. And then again, one of my, my wife loves wine. So I try to bring a wine into the meal that I know she'll like. So for example, with these fajitas that I ended up cooking, I matched it with a, uh, you know, and this is going to sound, make me sound like a wine snob, but a, uh, uh, Sauvignon Blanc which is a, a, a white wine. Uh, I, yeah. dude, I absolutely loved that pairing. And, uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love crushing a couple bush lights when I cook, uh, you know, uh, a venison beef burger or meatloaf or whatever. But this meal, the fajitas and the wine just made it perfect. And I was excited about it and she was excited about it. And, uh, it's going to allow me to feed and cook more venison for the family. So that sounds uh, great. Yeah. And that recipe sounds awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It, oh, you well, might have to send that to me. Just so I know. Try it right I know. Away. I'm going to, uh, I think I'm going to actually between me and you and I, well now everybody who's, who's listening, uh, yeah. I, I think I'm going to start a simple cooking show on the sportsman's nation YouTube channel. So, uh, later this year, I think me and another guy are going to kind of put out put out some recipes so uh, you know just they're not going to be elaborate like what you're going to find like you, what you would find on the meat eater they're going to be like hey i got three kids and i work full-time type of recipes you know what i mean so uh um, that's a great idea yeah uh all right i'm going to stop here and i'm going to take a hard transition back to what you do for a living and okay. uh fitness and uh so 
I've already mentioned that I'm a, a slob right now, but every every spring I start to crack out of that slob shell and get back into the physical fitness, preparing for Western hunts, whether it's elk or mule deer or just getting in shape because it's nice outside. And I've noticed that my very first elk hunt, all I did was get into, you know, I did some cardio on a... Uh, on a stair stepper and on a, uh, a treadmill and I did my, a lot of legs and I lifted heavy and I thought that was going to do it for me. Right. I went to Idaho. I got my ass crushed by the mountain. Like I was just, I, I felt like I didn't do anything. Then fast forward a couple years, I went to Colorado for the first time. This was three years ago and I ended up, um, basically just going on a ton of long hikes with a lot of pe- weight on my back. And that allowed me, I felt like that was better preparation uh, than what I did years before, knowing that years before I spent way more time getting ready for, for this. But I felt like I, I, uh, my workout routine replicated what I was going to be doing out in the mountains. So when you set a, um, a, I don't know, whether it's uh, baseball or football or a training program for an individual, how much of it replicates what they are actually going to be doing when they're out playing a sport or out in the field? It really depends on the sport and if there's going to be a, a – a because there's going to be certain reasons in certain sports to stay away from activities that are doing in the sport. So, for instance, a pitcher, you know, a pitcher's throwing that that throw all day long in practice, all day long in the game. The last thing I'm going to do in a gym setting is mimic that movement mm-hmm. because you, you're we're going to come down to overuse injuries. You know, it's like if you come to me and you're a marathon runner and you want to get faster, me having you run more is only going to make you get injured quicker because you're already doing plenty of running. Yeah, you know, but in the in what you're talking about, like in the program I would do for a Western hunter, someone coming from the flatlands from the Midwest to go Western, I would definitely include hiking in there, and it would be not only for increasing work capacity when you're hiking, but also um, I call it uh, doing doing like benchmark tests. So in a program for Western hunting, let's say you had ten months to get ready for it or nine months. I would have a benchmark hike every month that got longer in duration that had the exact same loads you would do on an average day in your hunt. So let's say it's a 50 pound pack, you know, and I would have you use your same pack, the same boots you plan on using, the same clothing, even the pants, because not only do I want to get you ready for the hike, I want to get your gear dialed in. And I know I'm not a gear specialist, but I've been on enough long hikes with a lot of weight on my back in the Marine Corps in the mountains to know it really sucks if you're five miles into a 12 mile hike up a mountainside and your pants are making your underwear right up your butt. I mean, I'm yeah. sorry, it sucks. Yeah. You know, or your pack sucks, you know, you don't know, you can't try to pack in the store and walk around the store and know what it's going to do on a 12 mile hike. Right. The only thing you can do is hike with it. Yeah. That's a great point. 
That's a great point. Um, so I always lived by this motto when I do my training now is legs feed the wolf. Um, other than legs, what body parts or, um, I guess movements should a guy who's whether you're prepping for a mule deer hunt that's just a lot of glassing or uh let's say an elk hunt that's a lot more movement what are you what other uh other than legs what do you recommend uh well i mean of course legs are gonna be a big part of my routine so i'd recommend a three day a week program of lifting and that would be concentrating on some very basic lifts you're gonna so as much testosterone as possible, release as many muscles, so, you know, squats, legs, uh, shoulder press, and standing shoulder press. Probably some good mornings just to hit that lower back and make sure your hamstrings are flexible enough. Uh, What's a good morning? Uh, and some good mornings where you have the weight, you can either hold it in your chest, like, um, like imagine you're holding a sandbag up high on your chest, and your knees are slightly bent and you're taking your butt back and leaning over like you're bowing. Oh, okay. I gotcha. Okay. Got and it. you can move up to a barbell with that movement also. And then you can start adding more load. It's just going to, it's going to help, uh, and support that back a little bit better. Okay. Uh, which is going to take a lot of abuse on a hike. Um, you know, I'm going to have bench press in there, probably walking weighted lunges and some rows and pull-ups, even though, you know, you're not going to be doing pull-ups on the mountains. It's a movement that's going to work a lot of your muscles and is going to make you stronger overall, and that's the key. Yeah. So one thing that I noticed on my very first, like for some reason, I just don't like doing abs. Uh, Leg lifts, sit-ups, whatever. Uh, I don't like doing it. But what I realized was the importance of core strength uh, on that very first elk hunt, I could just feel my abs getting tight and feeling um, feeling overworked and uh, exhausted. And then I really focused on that. Um, how how important is the core of the body when doing some of these these hunting activities? Uh, it's very important, but it's very important. But if I focus, if you focus solely for your next hunt on doing crunches and leg lifts, you're not going to get as much bang for your buck as if you just do really good form on heavier barbell movements and get stronger and stronger and stronger. Your core is going to get stronger and still throw in, you know, a few minutes twice a week of direct core work, but the rest is going to be you're going to get it through the movements. Gotcha. So, so basically, the stronger we get you, so let's say you, you carry a 50-pound pack. If you can only squat you know, uh, 150 pounds, we're talking that's 33% of your one rep max. If I can make your one rep max 300 before you go, you're going to drop that to 16% and you can go for days with that load. Yeah. Yeah. That makes your core stronger too. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Do you, do you do a lot of your programs based off of weight programs based off percentage of, let's say like if I can bench 225 pounds one time or whatever, you should be able to do 30% this many times, 40% this many times. Is that how you put together a, a weightlifting program? Uh, I have in the past, but really the problem with percent, percent, uh, percent-based programs is every day is different. You know, you have days where you go out and you hike and you feel way better than others. Like that 80% or 70% 
might be easy one day and it might not be the next day. So now I program more with so many reps in the tank. So I'm going to program you to do, you know, a set of, let's say, 8 to 12. I want you to stop when you feel like you have three more good, good reps in the tank. Gotcha. That's something that can change daily. And you just have to learn as a, as a person to feel that gotcha. to know what you have lost. Okay. The last thing I want to talk to you about is diet. And this is something that I feel like last year I got a good routine in. I did a lot of running. Um, I did a lot of, uh, weighted pack hikes. I got some weights in, um, you know, focused on really trying to get in shape, but at the same time, my diet, I, I am, I am a sweets guy. I am a carbs guy. I suck at the, at giving up those things. What are some foods that really will, if you if you change something small, will help you perform better out in the backcountry, or um, even in in a tree stand. And I I, I want to I think I'm going to share an example before you answer because I think this will really um, uh, let you answer it better. So I used to be the guy who would just grab candy bars, apple pies, uh, a soda, and go to the tree stand. I would drink it. Uh, and then two hours later, after I had my snack, I would just feel tired and gross. Then I switched to apples, bananas, carrots in the tree stand. And I felt like I wasn't necessarily wide awake, but at the same time, I wasn't struggling to stay awake, right? I was awake, I was comfortable, and I was able to um, sit longer without getting tired. So now knowing that, talk to us about like proper eating, whether before, while you're training or during one of these hunting activities, whether it's tree stand or a Western hunt. So, uh, two things on nutrition that's very important is, you know, like you said, you go up in tree stand, you take candy bars and so you feel like crap, right? Yeah. I think a lot of people, and more importantly for a Western hunt, they might eat good. They might train and someone might give them some pretty good nutrition advice and, they might be great for three months going into it. And then all of a sudden, the moment they're on their way out to Colorado, they think they can buy all gas stations. Right. And that's going to hit you, You're, especially then. Your body's used to clean, good, clean calories, and you're eating a certain macro, macronutrient. Uh, and so profile, you're having so many carbs, so much fat, so much protein, and then all of a sudden you go to straight candy bars. You're going to crash hard. Yeah. So whatever you do before the hunt, you need to try to replicate during the hunt as much as possible. Um, I eat a nutrition plan that has carbs in it. It's just my carbs are around my workout times, before and after my workout times. But every meal, I have a certain amount of protein, a certain amount of carbs, and a certain amount of fat. So if I'm going hunting in the tree stand, for instance, I, I concentrate on apples, Almonds for my fat, so apples for my carbs, and some almonds for my fat, and beef jerky for my, for my protein. And that doesn't mean that's the only three things you can do. That's just what works really well for me. Yeah. They're easy to measure. They're quick to measure. I throw them in a baggie, and you always feel good. Uh, I think too many people are just looking for what to take away to get them in shape. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to never eat a carb again. It's not going to happen. You're going to go to deer camp and have beers yeah. somehow. You know, let's find what works for you where you can have carbs because it is going to fuel your body. Right, 
right? Now, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, not, yeah. Um, and I'll, let me be more specific here. I talked with a guy who did a lot of research on diet, and he, um, I wasn't probably eating as much meat or nuts as I probably should have. I was eating uh, probably a little bit more carbs uh, on my during the day. But do carbs do carbs? Are they a quicker burning uh, source of energy as opposed to proteins uh, or things like that? Like it's the type of energy you're consuming uh, when, when you're hiking up a mountain or something. So your body is going to have to get energy from either carbohydrates or either fats. Yeah. You know, it can break down protein if it has to. It's going to be the last resort for your body to use protein. Okay. So that's why you hear people go keto. They're going to go higher fats because they're replacing that energy source of carbs with fat. Uh, you have to have one of them too, you know, as a staple. Um, I find much better performance uh, from carbs with most of my clients. So having carbs is very important. It's just having, you know, it comes down to total calories a day. If you just say, oh, carbs are great. This guy on a podcast said carbs are great and start eating, you know, in some buckets of rice, it's probably not going to go well. Yeah. It's got to be measured. It's got to be controlled. Um, and you've got to make sure you find what works for you. The one thing I can recommend to most people is have your carbs around your workout time. Okay. After your workout, you're going to get the most use of them carbs. They're going to help drive nutrients in your muscles and get better repair and everything like that. Gotcha. All right. So um, last kind of uh, question and it's, again, very selfish because I have you on the phone uh, about what I'm doing. I've started a uh, intermittent, intermittent fasting uh, schedule the way I eat. Like I don't eat until noon and then I stop eating uh, around 5 o'clock, uh, 6 o'clock in the afternoon. So no snacks yep. after. And the only thing I'm drinking before is coffee. Uh, so from the time I wake up, uh, there's no food entering my system. I, I'm only drinking coffee. And then after um, after supper, maybe a glass of wine uh, throughout the night, but no no food for all that all that time. Basically six hours bef- uh, after I wake up and six hours before I go to bed. Is that a is that a good thing for someone who's training to um, do a western hunt or I mean someone who's gonna spend long amounts of time in a tree stand? Uh, there's pluses and minuses to it. I know a lot of my friends, a lot of people I work with are love intermittent fasting. I mean, the science tells us most of the science I've found, and you'll find people that argue this, but most of the science I've found is it works for most people because you end up eating less calories a day than you burn. So like anything else, gotcha. it comes down to how many calories you're taking in compared to how you burn. Now, however, I will say for a hunting life, especially for tree stand hunters and, you know, maybe not for out west. As long as you're used to it, out west will be fine. But for tree stand hunters, there's nothing better than intermittent fasting because you go out in the morning, you don't have to worry about food. Right. Right. Which is nice. You're not packing all that food and you're not getting hungry. And you know that once you get used to intermittent fasting, you don't get hungry until noon. Right. Sometimes you don't get hungry until 2. So it's really nice not to have to worry about that when it comes to hunting. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Uh, we're getting ready to wind down here. Any other tips or tricks or high level uh, insight that you'd like to share to the audience today about um, whether it's preparing for uh, all day 
you know, all day hunting or Western hunt or deer hunting or health and fitness, just anything that could relate to the activities that we're doing in the field every, every day or every season? Uh, do not be afraid of, of like lifting weights. Don't think, I think everything out there right now is just run. You'll be fine. You'll find out that running won't get you in shape to drag a deer out the moment you try to drag a deer out. Yeah. You know, the stronger you can get while still maintaining that cardiovascular, while still being able to go out and hike and run and everything else you need to do to get back to your hunting spot, you need to be strong enough to where you can carry that pack, you can pull that deer, you can do everything like that. It's going to make you feel 100% better. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I will say on the opposite end of that, don't just lift heavy weights all the time. Of course. course. (laughs) Because that's what I did for my first elk hunt, and I felt like I went into it like feeling like I had great muscle and I felt good, but then it instantly, like the activity did not replicate what I was doing in the gym. Like I had muscle, but I I felt like I had too much muscle. And I, and I think that's a fair statement. You gotta, you know, you gotta do everything. That's why I guess the one thing, especially for the Western hunt is do that benchmark hike. That is going to tell you so much about yourself, about your gear and about your fitness. You know, let's say that benchmark uh, uh, hike every month starts at, you know, five miles and you add two miles a month, you do that for seven months, you're hiking a pretty long amount and choose the hardest terrain you can that can still maintain a pace, if that makes sense. You don't want something where you got to stop every two seconds to climb over a rock. And that's going to tell you where your fitness is going and you can make changes and tweaks to be ready for that Western hunt. Yeah, that's awesome. That's good insight. Well, I tell you what, man, I really appreciate you hopping on the podcast today um, and uh, chit-chatting with us about your introduction to hunting and physical fitness and all that stuff. So thanks for your time. No problem. Thank you. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, another episode in the books. Huge shout out to Jeremy. Thank you very much, not only for your service, but for hopping on this episode and chit-chatting with us. Huge shout out to all the partners of this podcast, Vortex, Lone Wolf, Wasp, Ozonics, Prime, and The Average Conservationist. Please go out and support the companies that support this podcast. And lastly, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for taking time out of your day to download or listen or wherever it is that you're getting uh, getting this episode. If you like what, what I'm doing here, do me a favor and please spread the word. Tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell anybody else who is, is uh, excited about hunting as you are about who's excited like myself and uh, just spread the word about the nine finger chronicles and the sportsman's nation man make sure you're following us on instagram and facebook make sure you are following uh you're subscribed to the sportsman's nation and the nine finger chronicles on itunes or wherever you download your podcasts and last but not least just be a good person spread happiness send good vibes out into the universe and i swear to god man you're going to get them back and uh, give back whenever you can, uh, whether that's a conservation, whether that's writing a check, whether that's donating your time and volunteering to a conservation effort. Um, now's the time to do it, not tomorrow, today. So uh, 
see what you can do to give back, man. And that's what uh, the message is going to be like in 2020. So uh, thanks again, and we'll talk to you next time.